From the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. Without doubt, quote-unquote, the Internet has had huge implications for the media industry, but displacement is not at all one of them. Nothing has died. In fact, it has given new life and, like, superpowers to cable. My guest today is Dr. Amanda D. Lotz. She's a media studies professor at Queensland University of Technology and a fellow at the Peabody Media Center. Her research focuses on understanding the implications of internet distribution on media industries with a particular focus on U.S. television. Her most recent book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All, looks at how and why the business of television changed between 1996 and 2016 to adjust to the medium's storytelling possibilities. Amanda Lotz, welcome to the podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. So uh, your book is really the tale of sort of two periods or two technologies, one a transformation, one a revolution, but they're also kind of deeply intertwined. You mark the book through a series of kind of watershed years without being really reductive about it. But I wonder if we can talk about some of those moments, beginning with 1996, which seems to be sort of the starting point of your story. So what made 1996 such an important year for the transformation of television? Well, I did not know it was going to be 1996 when I started. I knew there was a story. I wasn't exactly sure where this, what the story was or where the story began. And so I started with this question of, why did it take so long to get original cable programming, and how can I possibly explain it? And and just went back and was reading the trades of the time and, and trying to figure out, you know, what caused this. And in 96, it was, you know, just this confluence of, of a couple things that were superficially important, those sort of things that look like they're important in the time but perhaps aren't retrospectively. Um, and then the things that aren't talked about as much. So if in saying the words 1996 to anyone in the U.S. who knows much about media, you'd think the Telecommunication Act of 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and indeed, that is one of, of the forces. Um, what was important about that act for this story is that it opened up competition by allowing telecommunication or what were at the time landline phone providers to move into cable competition and for cable video providers to move into phone um, and and that was expected to be really significant. However, um, you know, technology takes a while to build out, and so that story of that competition actually takes uh, really about a decade to develop. But what did happen in 96, entirely separate from the Telecom Act, is that satellite distribution really came into its own. Uh, so the first satellites, and these are the smaller DBS satellites that we're familiar with now as opposed to the big, giant C-band ones that existed before that, but the, the DBS satellites had come onto the market in 1994. There, there were a lot of providers. I think there were about 10 providers at that point. But 96 is really the year that DirecTV hits its stride and is providing something that is not a product that only a few people seem to be interested in. And it's really satellite that provides the competition that Congress really wanted uh, to come out yeah. of the Telecom Act. And so in 96, when the cable industry sees, oh, well, we are now competing against another provider who can do what we do and arguably better because it was a digital service. It had more channels um, to a degree, depending on if you had bad cable resolution, often the digital signal Mm -hmm. was better. Um, And so all of that finally was enough to convince the cable industry 
to move more aggressively into rebuilding their infrastructure, which was a huge cost, but it just had to happen, um, and transition from analog cable delivery to digital cable delivery. And the best part, I think, in many ways of the story is everything was about getting more channels and potentially, quote unquote, interactive TV. But retrospectively, the the key part of this story is that basically that rebuild is what gave the cable companies the possibility to transition into the Internet companies, as they have in the early 21st century. Um, and the, the power and scale that they have as those Internet service companies is incredible, arguably unrivaled and very much unchecked. Um, and so... It's just – it's an incredible story, especially when you look at the fi- the direness of their financial straits in the late 1990s and early 2000s as the cable rebuild did not go as well as they yeah. wanted it to um, and that they were hemorrhaging money. Um, and it was a huge cost, but um, it has, has certainly paid off for them. Yeah, and it's, it's like an unintended consequence, right? They, you, you don't necessarily see this one coming, unlike, say, in Hollywood in the 50s when – Studios see that television is coming, but they get into the game right. in a different way. This is like we're forced to shift our, our business model. This may be the end of us, but guess what? Well, and what was curious <laughs> is they didn't see – they saw the internet coming, but they saw it wrong, yeah. right? Um, and, and as you'll remember, the, the perception in the early 2000s was the internet was this thing that was going to replace everything, yes. right? Yes. Um, and it was – without doubt quote-unquote, the internet has had huge implications for the media industry, but displacement is not at all one of them. Nothing has died. In no. fact, it has given new life and, like, superpowers to cable. But the issue was that in the early 2000s, everywhere the perception was that it was going to come and kill cable, mm-hmm. that people were going to switch to this other thing, the yeah. internet, instead yeah. of cable. And that severely depressed the uh, valuations on Wall Street of the cable companies, which made it even harder for them to get the money that they needed to build what ultimately then became came the internet. Do you think some of that had to do with the fact that cable had been around forever, but as as a alternate distribution system for solving technical problems and not hadn't necessarily been seen until the 80s as a place for expanded programming 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. But even then the, the expansion was sort of weak, right? Mm-hmm. There was just a lot there, but not much to watch. Exactly. And I, and then that's the other piece of the story that I think um, an audience, let's say, uh, of my students who really don't remember the 90s yeah. or, the, or the 2000s for the most part. And in, in this decade in which cable programming has become, you know, the bell of the ball and you look at all the Emmy nominations, it's all cable. And remembering that it was actually only just about 20 years ago that cable programming was just literally the butt of jokes. I remember, mm-hmm. I could not find it to, to officially like market in the book, but I remember a, a late night monologue and like, bo-dum bump, the punchline was about lifetime programming. Um, and so, yes, I mean, cable programming at the time was nothing inspirational um, or aspirational or anything that people would tune into. And so that was then the other part of the story. Uh, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Why did that technical story that I just told in 96, you know, result in original cable programming. And the answer is that all of a sudden their business had to change because in the analog cable era, basically you were capped at about 30 channels and you could have a decent business simply by being something different than what the broadcast networks were providing. And so rerun or, you know, syndicated Mm -hmm. old television or five to 10 year old theatrical releases, that was, that was great. People were excited because there was so little out there. However, in an environment where there were going to be hundreds of cable channels, that wasn't going to be enough. 
And to their credit, I think a lot of the executives who who were scheduling and planning cable channels recognized that they needed a new strategy and that they were going to need to stand out some way um, mm-hmm. and that by developing original programming – that uh, it would help both of their revenue streams. So half of their money roughly was coming in from advertising, and so they'd be able to expand their audience, they believed, if they offered um, different and original programming. But the other half of their money was coming from the the money that we pay each month to the cable service providers. They pay a certain amount back to the channels. And it would help them in their negotiations with the cable providers if they could be able to say, look, we're offering something people can't get anywhere else. Uh, We want a couple pennies more a month. And that actually adds up into huge money when you take those couple of pennies, multiply it by, you know, by that point, getting close to 100,000 subscribers every single month. And that's kind of what led ESPN, for instance, to dominate so much because it was the only game in town for a long time. And ESPN could drive the negotiations up to, what, nearly $6 per subscriber per month. So let's talk about programming a little bit. You do this amazing job, I think, of shifting from technological, regulatory, economic, and aesthetic you know, programming uh, issues that drive these transformations and revolutions. So you talk a lot about um, La Femme Nikita, mm-hmm. and it's not a show that most people will remember. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that show is an important uh, element in understanding what, what happens later. Mm-hmm. Well, La Femme Nikita, and this is the first version, uh, listeners today may be aware that there was a more recent reboot, Um, it was produced by USA, uh, and it was really one of the first original cable productions that gained a little bit of traction, right? So this was not the first original basic cable series. Uh, The ones that came before are uh, fantastically bad. (laughs) Um, And basically what happened at first was that the cable channels were like, well, we need to make original programming. Um, However, we don't have as much money as the broadcast networks, but we're going to try to make programs just like them. Because at that point, like cable was seen as – you know, something lesser other than, and so it made sense for their first effort to be like, well, we're going to be like the thing we want to be, right? Um, But that's just a terrible equation, right? You can't try and be like something and do it with less money and think it's going to go well. And so those, the early experiments, um, you know, they just, they looked awful. They looked derivative um, and, and nobody increased their expectation of cable programming. La Femme Nikita, however, was different. Um, it, it, it's not super different by today's standards, but it has a lot of the the pieces of what we now understand as um, distinctive cable drama. Uh, it, it was set around a, a female lead, which at that time very few programs were. That, that trend was just beginning. Uh, it was dark, um, <laughs> really without any levity at all. Um, it was more of the action caper, which again, as... It's a programming form we have in the in the '60s, but had, had largely faded. Um, it was more international, whereas um, you know this was a in the and the broadcast channels were still in a moment of high cop drama, um, and so all of that made it just a, a little bit different. Um, and I think the big key though was that it, it even though it was cheaper than the broadcast programming being produced at the time. It was a co-production, which gave it a little bit more money than some of those mm-hmm. other shows that had preceded it. And so it was episodic, a mystery of the week kind of style uh, or spy adventure of the week. Um, and it was eventually a show that 
you know, people would say, you know, they would look to see what was on USA, which was at the time, you know, in terms of culture and behavior, what do you do when you sit down to watch TV at night? You check the major broadcast networks and decide among those because you know there's not going to be anything new on a cable network. But that was the beginning of, of, of countering that behavior. So it sort of demonstrates to the cable uh, channels, uh, networks, that there is money to be made in, in original programming. So then another show that you talk about um, that I think is important to, to mention here uh, is Oz. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why Oz is so central to the story here. And so Oz and, and both shows are debuting more or less at the same time within about six months of mm-hmm. each other. So throughout the part of the book in which I'm talking about programming, I try to bounce back and forth between the story of subscriber-funded cable like HBO and ad-supported cable because they really have different abilities um, and mandates related to how they make their money. So for HBO, Oz was its first successful drama, its first drama, um, and it falls very much in line with a longer strategy of HBO pivoting in response to what was happening in the broader audiovisual environment. And so HBO has has been around since the 70s, mm-hmm. um, and by the early 1980s, they had moved into original movie production. And, and HBO original films were, were a thing. Like People knew them. Um, they were distinctive. They were often telling stories that you wouldn't see in a theatrical film, nor would you see in a, a made-for-TV movie because the broadcast networks were still making films then. And, and that had been a good strategy for them, and, and it was something that they needed to do when the home video market emerged, and they were no longer the only game in town for uh, theatrical movies. And so the the pivot to original series was part of, of HBO recognizing that even though they were a cable channel, which ostensibly means they are television, uh, they had really always cultivated an identity as being different from television um, due to their reliance on theatricals, uh, special events, sporting events, uh, and things like comedy specials. And you know they'd never had like a regular schedule, mm-hmm. and they were seeing problems with churn. In other words, people dropping the service and you know sort of feeling like their subscriptions weren't really worth it. They weren't getting enough out of the channel. And they identified that by creating some regularized programming that actually people felt like they were getting more value. And it it started simply by creating Saturday night as a debut night for a a fairly recent theatrical. Um, But from there, they recognized that, you know, they've been fighting their true identity all along by not having a regular scheduling practice. And what do you need a regular scheduling practice? You need series. Um, And so they were looking to develop something um, really bold and different. And indeed, they succeeded uh, with Oz. Um, And, and you know, in terms of, of, I think a lot of Oz's significance uh, gets lost because Mm -hmm. of The Sopranos coming along a few years later and how buzzy uh, The Sopranos is. Um, But really, you know, Oz started it all. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there is The Sopranos necessarily without Oz because Oz was at least a measured success. I mean, Mm -hmm. it wasn't a blockbuster, but it certainly showed them that they could increase subscriber base. They could get into this kind of prestige series programming that they'd already been in with with some series, mm-hmm. but this was mostly with comedies before yeah. this. Um, yeah, I, now I don't know how how Oz would necessarily be a bigger success. It is mm-hmm. a very particular um, taste. I, I still think yeah. it, it's boundary defying. Twenty five years later, um, you know, <laughs> there there has still not been anything quite like it in terms of no. its frank, honest 
depiction of of life and um, and, and not in a, in a in a really not in a gratuitous way. And it's a very careful no. way. Now, I think I mean I wonder to what degree um, you know, the creative talent behind The Sopranos um, whether they would have thought HBO could could be a home without yeah. having had success with Oz in the, in the sense that that Fontana felt really free. Um, and able to tell the stories that he wanted to tell. And, you know, that was so contrary at that point to what the experience in quote-unquote television yeah. was that I, I'm sure that that helped a lot. Well, he was so constrained. I mean, they were so constrained with Homicide in some ways. Even though Homicide was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, there were so many constraints on it. And coming off of that, which was a frustrating experience for them, um, had to seem like a liberation. Um, one more series I want to talk about before we, then we shift mm-hmm. into the revolution is The Shield. And I have this memory of um, a particular week in 2002 when The Shield debuted and a couple nights before that um, season on the brink showed mm-hmm. on ESPN. And they did this weird thing where they, ESPN showed the unedited uh, version on ESPN and then had a, a cleaner version on ESPN2, mm-hmm. which struck me as interesting. And then a couple days later, here comes The Shield. Mm-hmm. And it was like not much I'd seen before. And I wonder if you could talk about how The Shield then offers us another glimpse into mm-hmm. this movement, this transformation. Right. So The Shield at the time, I mean, my memory of roughly that week was reading Trade Press and that most of the buzz and discussion of this coming show on FX was about the advertising defections, that it was going to be so gritty and that it was just objectionable and the Parents Television Council was all upset. Um, So, um, you know, I think that was the the frame, but that was, again, sort of what uh, FX was going after. And so debuting in in 2002, this is pretty much the very – it's the last season of La Femme Nikita. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, La Femme Nikita had been on the air for five years, no other cable channel had really – established a, a basic cable uh, to hit, although HBO at that point was off to the races yeah. with a, you know, consecutive big hits year after year. So, so I think at that point, at the point of The Shield's debut, it, the jury was still largely out whether this was a strategy that basic cable could succeed with, even play in. And, um, you know, I, to their credit, I'd say FX really swung for the fences with, mm-hmm. with the show. Um, and so it had this buzz about the advertising. And and it had a slow-ish start, but mm-hmm. you know I remember that within within a month the story had shifted to, um, in fact, all of those defections had been replaced, and that that the show was doing pretty well. And again, it had this advantage because there was nothing else like it. Um, it was aspiring to be like a pay cable show, but on basic cable. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of, of really following somewhat the playbook of, of HBO, they couldn't do it precisely because they were still out-supported. Um, and so the narrative, in some ways, I'd say, was more conventional. It was an episodic show, yeah. um, but certainly with these long arcs about really the characters. And as I've looked at it, my other work, it was one of the early shows that was really sort of meditating on these questions of, of what is a good man and, you know, really centering a protagonist that, you know, he, the language has been anti-hero, but that's not really the right term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Vic Mackey is a bad guy. Yeah. You see that he loves his children and will do many things for them, but but at his core, um, yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah. Um, and he takes yeah. down his friends with him in the process, <laughs> right? Um, but we hadn't had on 
basic cable that kind of character. Um, American television, in its efforts, in its ad-supported need to draw in as many people as possible, you know, the good guys had to be clearly good and the bad guys bad. And, and this was really in defiance of that. Yeah, and it seems interesting to me that they're also playing with regulatory structures that give them a relative freedom. So when HBO has pretty much carte blanche Mm -hmm. beyond the obvious uh, restrictions. Cable, ad-supported cable, is also a less restrictive environment than broadcast, Mm -hmm. though they sort of play it safe because of advertisers. But when you see that advertisers will come back, the gates kind of open. Advertisers will come back and certain kind of advertisers, and that was a key part of it, is that um, at that point in the early 2000s, Reaching men on television was getting increasingly difficult, and you could do it with sports, but sports were really expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the fact that they were a place where you could get young people um, and and younger men, um, both of those things were particularly valuable to advertisers that uh, were after specifically that segment. And so if you go back and look at those old Shield commercials, um, it's it's not the same advertisers that you're seeing often on, um, on even somewhere like USA. So I want to shift now to the revolution. As you mentioned earlier, what cable had been forced to do almost is build an infrastructure that perhaps unbeknownst to them was going to lead them into the revolution, um, which is um, Internet distributed television. So I wonder, you, you talk a little bit about 2010 as a big year, but I wonder if you could talk to us about how sort of that revolution started to take root and what the sort of primary forces were. Well, in, I think... Nothing happens in a vacuum. And so I think it's important to remember that, let's see, as early as you know, 2000 through 2002, these are the years that uh, Napster is really disrupting the mm-hmm. music industry. Um, and all sorts of things are happening in print also, sort of this confusion about the newspaper dying and is it on paper or online. And, and so that also was taking place in those earliest years of the 21st century. And there were experiments in internet distributed video um and now as around 2005 2006 most of the the major conglomerates had something out there these all have been forgotten to time right Mm -hmm. Um, but the thing is there wasn't an audience there yet and the internet speeds weren't really capable of supporting it the other i think the other big piece of it is at that point remember that really desktops are what we're talking and and nobody wants to sit at their desk any longer than they have to and so now, there's just all of these things that are, are sort of slowing any kind of adoption or change, even though technologically some things are available. And, you know, I, I remember those times as being – I was still on dial-up and just, mm-hmm. you know, courting DSL. Forget, you know, high-speed broadband. Um, so any amount of video was going to be a little bit daunting mm-hmm. um, So and not look very good. The pixelation was high. Um, so what happens in, in 2010 that you think is important? So a number of, of, of things that had been developing over the decade, um, but in particular, we have some technological changes. 2010, at that point, we've had smartphones in the market since 2007, and, and, and there had been this gradual oh, transition or adoption, I think would be the better word, right, with the first the video iPod even before that and the idea of people watching on these smaller handheld screens. But 2010 is when tablets come to market, um, and so that's you know something that's much more portable, and, and Apple is really pushing video watching on these devices. Um, t- laptops overtake desktops that year in terms of overall sales. So at a technological level, we have screens that are easier, more comfortable to watch things on. And then the other piece is that we finally have some services really distributing. So Netflix 
is available before 2010, but mm-hmm. 2010 is the year they launched their app. Um, and that's the same year that HBO Go begins, which is the streaming service offered by HBO as part of your subscription, not requiring any additional payment, which was a genius strategy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in, and, and again, like because I, I lived through this period while not doing this project, uh, I remember in 2010 – um, the first time I loaded up uh, HBO Go, and it was I was a late Netflix adopter, so I had, had not experienced Netflix at all. And I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, this is different. Yeah. And because I had seen the experiments, Motherload, which was Comedy Central's experiment, yeah. uh, Pipeline by CNN, um, uh, Into TV by AOL, you know, all of those uh, efforts to distribute video basically often on, on websites – they just looked terrible, yeah. um, and they were slow loading and blocky, and um, and in many cases there was very little available because the because the business really is all about controlling licenses, and and yeah. and there was just so much fear, especially after what had happened to the recorded music industry, that you know if we let the content out at all, we can't, you know, yeah. we'll never get it back. Um, but there, HBO in in just beautiful HD quality video. <laughs> um, all of the library of everything that had ever been on HBO, um, because yeah. they had happened in, in a odd, quirky, ingenious move um, back in the days of Oz, um, had decided to produce almost all of their series. So they own the license and they were able to decide that it was going to be now available mm-hmm. in this way. Um, and so, so yeah, 2010 is, is, I think, the turning point because people have the technology and actually services that are worth using. Yeah. And, and so that really begins um, a steady period of consumers experiencing internet distributed video and the different way that it allows them to watch television, mm-hmm. which is this much more on demand, on their schedule. Um, you know, this is soon after we start to move into this language of, of, of binge viewing, but mm-hmm. um, all of that sort of steady uh, steadily follows on. I did want to pick up on one thing you said about ownership and producing your own content. It seems like there's, this is also a time when the traditional structures of production companies supplying uh, networks with material that then they get back later, that seems to be getting eaten away at here, right? Are these networks looking now to own more of their own programming for the very purpose of redistribution later? Certainly. And so by 2010, uh, we have totally left the era of FinCEN. Um, And so those rules that prevented the networks from owning their own content or owning much of it um, had eroded in the early 1990s and and were clearly gone, actually, um, in the mid-1990s. And it it was actually almost overnight um, that Mm -hmm. the strategy changed and and they began owning almost everything in-house. But I think it actually took a while for the industrial practices in-house to sort out. Um, And so, so, yeah, sort of the recognition that... Um, in this increasingly competitive environment, because you had cable by this point, you know, as a legitimate competitor, and importantly, cable wasn't any, it wasn't an other. In many cases, yeah. you have actually in every case of, of the major conglomerates, they own a broadcast network and they own multiple cable channels. And so these are just different revenue streams all yeah. coming into the same house. So they weren't seeing themselves necessarily as in competition in the way that uh, journalists continued and continue to set up a broadcast cable competition. <laughs> The idea became increasingly that you know the first window was less important, mm-hmm. um, and you know because you were making something for your own network, this is uh, something that many have uh, 
explained as why production budgets increased so much at that time because it was just e- if you were producing it for your own network and then you were going to own the rights, you know, if you were making it better, you were going to receive the benefit of that yeah. on down the line. Um, so production budgets were going up, but the truth was that they were going to continue to be able to monetize the programming yeah. um, you know, internationally and through different, different cable windows. Um, and at this point, as a result of, of services such as, as Netflix, this is that moment when uh, Netflix is going around trying to fill up its library and, you know, has, you know, 8 million subscribers and uh, the studios are like, whatever, you're 8 million subscribers, <laughs> silliness. Yeah, sure, you can have some of this old content for a little bit of money, no big deal. Yeah. Um, and, and by the time those deals were up, uh, you know, Netflix is saying, hey, we have 20 million subscribers. And yeah. at that point, oh, um, the recognition that the, that the business had really changed and that, yeah. that, that internet distributed video was going to be a part of the sector. Um, yeah. And in many people's minds, um, you know, this concern that they were going to take over and replace. So I want to um, close with a, um, a question about one of the big revolutions in my mind that com- comes from the book is the, the idea that the schedule, the thing that had sort of run television for the longest time, gets kind of obliterated in, in, in the internet distribution area. And you start to talk about a different term, which is the portal. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that and explain what you mean by portal? <laughs> Um, yeah, we needed a term because Internet Distributed Television Service is really long to talk about what something like Netflix was. But when I started the book, uh, there was still definitely this sense of television and Netflix as yeah. being different things. Yeah. Um, and, and so part of the, the, the subtle uh, revolution that I am trying to push with the book is really, no, Netflix is internet distributed television and yeah. film. It's, it's not its own category. Uh, it, the, the internet is not a medium. Um, but if it, you know, it's sort of like if it quacks like a duck, um, and if we look at how the, the industrial practices behind it, how people watch it, uh, that's a little tougher. But these forms are everything we understand as television. And actually, I think the, the, perhaps my stronger case is we need frameworks to understand things, and the frameworks for understanding television or film, depending on which we're talking about, work very well, mm-hmm. um, rather than trying to invent a wheel to explain Netflix as some sort of new media form, right? It's not a form. It's a new distribution system. And I think your book does that. I think, I think one of the things that's so nice about this book and so useful is that it places this new thing, this what people think has replaced the old, into the context of television. And I've always I had this argument ongoing with my students when they say, I don't watch television. I, I said, yes, you do. You don't watch it the same way, but you still watch television. But they watch it online, right? So it's not television. And it, it probably depends a little bit on, you know, what argument are you trying to make, yeah. um, you know, in what way it matters. But I think as someone who studies the television industry, um, and I'm looking at the people who make this stuff, yeah. right? Like they're making television. What do we gain by by thinking of it as something else? And I'm not sure if that's a, a cultural capital thing or, or a generational thing. But well, it's funny because I think it goes back a long way. I think mm-hmm. I think there's been a move away from television forever, right? There's the you know when I was a kid, it was like, well, I don't watch television. We watch <laughs> PBS, but we don't watch television. And then HBO with it, it's not TV, it's uh. HBO. There's always been, and even I know you closed the book with a sort of nod toward the novel as a good model. And I've, I'm one of those who's always said, I don't like that comparison, but actually you make a good case for it. I'll just say that. It's I'll, an I'll industrial, not a textual <laughs> case, because I understand the textual <laughs> objection and I, I share that. So anyway, I think your book is a valuable 
uh, lesson for people to understand something new in its context and to understand where it might be going. So. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And that was very much the aim, I think, and in, in some ways, and really talking back to the zeitgeist of the early 21st century where everything is new and different. And, and in fact, you know, it's not. Um, and, you know, it's not change and continuity. Um, and, you know, I don't need to argue that it's, you know, you know where it is. Sure. But I think holding on to the continuity is really important because it gives us ways of understanding things that haven't worked their way out yet. Um, and looking at, I mean, what this book is doing is looking at really, we have 20 years of, mm-hmm. of, of change from what we understand now as the kind of classic television network era. And to understand what continues to happen, it's really helpful to understand those periods of change. And, and my hope was that um, by sort of letting go of some of the mythology of disruption, newness, difference, that actually we might find some tools that help us. Uh, come to understand you know, these things that seem very, very different. But in fact, um, they are it's audiovisual storytelling, which is something we've done for a long time in many cultures. Well, Amanda Lutz, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. And that'll do it for another episode of Modern Media. My guest today has been Amanda D. Lotz, a media studies professor at Queensland University of Technology in Australia and a fellow at the Peabody Media Center. We spoke today about her most recent book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. You can find out more about Amanda Lotz's work on our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.